Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Hey, good morning, church. Uh, Andre here. Thank you so much for joining us for our online gathering. If you are new to our church, uh, we'll love to extend a warm welcome to you once again. Uh, please let us know uh, if this is your first time joining our church, uh, albeit in this uh, unconventional manner. We so long to regather as a church, uh, and that's very much still uh, in our hearts. And so, looking forward to meeting you in person uh, someday. Now, before I go uh, into uh, what I've prepared. Uh, for all of us uh, this morning. I'd love to uh, just offer you know, some updates and some stuff that's been on, uh, not just our minds, but has been in our plans and uh, on our hearts uh, over the last few weeks. Now, many of you would know that uh, next week uh, we had actually planned uh, to reopen our physical services. Uh, you know, we have in our hearts to, uh, at some point uh, this year, run two services. Uh, one service would uh, cater 100 persons. Uh, we call it a vert service. Uh, don't get tripped up over the term. And vert simply means vaccinated, exempted, recovered, and tested. And so uh, you are able to join that service uh, if you're vaccinated. And if you're not, just get tested and you'll be able to be part of the service as well. And we were looking to also run a non-vert service. And so this would be an open service uh, that catered to 50 with uh, gosh programs for each and then rotating our church through that. And now that uh, involved a lot of plans and stuff like that, but it is something that you know, we so value. We so value the people of God coming together. Uh, I, I love to say this, that the online church is not an alternative way to church. It is not. It is, it is a concession. It is something that we have just gotten to make, we, we are just making do with in light of these times. This is not an alternative way to do church. The church, all through history, has been an embodied community coming together in sacrificial love for one another. And that's what we are about. And so, you know, we had, you know, the cases creeped up and then we were looking to uh, perhaps explore a calibrated opening of the church. Uh, and we were looking to do a uh, service uh, next week that's just one service, uh, it's a vert service, and then slowly creep up towards uh, being able to run two services as a church. And now in light of uh, the recent cases, as well as standing in solidarity with our government's uh, efforts to control the spread, uh, we are putting all of that on pause. Now, it is very easy for us to, over time, because of how many times we've had to pause our physical services, how many times we've had to shelf our plans to think that the physical gathering is just a peripheral thing. It's just a thing that uh, if we have it, we have it. If we don't, we don't. And I'd love to impress on your heart this morning a value for this gathering as well as a longing for it to, 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 to take place. You know, there is something precious, something sacred, something to be longed for and sought after. And I wonder how many of us over time because of perhaps, you know, now your Sunday mornings are free and you get to occupy yourselves with different things that your longing for the physical gatherings has slowly waned off over the last 18 months. That honestly to you, if this doesn't happen, it's okay. I get to tune into church whenever I want to. I get to do a delay broadcast, you know, if I want to because it's available for me and I really don't care and don't bother. And as your pastor, if this means anything to you, I'd love to speak to you, church. Have a value for this. This is something to be longed for and sought after. With all of my heart, 
I'd love to say this to you. This is not so that I can coerce you and manipulate you to serve more or give more. This is for the sake of your spiritual lives. Because the faith community is known for its practices and its rhythms. It's love for one another. And as a faith community, we have set in place this sacred rhythm of coming together as God's embodied community once a week on Sunday morning. And so I want to urge you to maintain that rhythm. I want to urge you, even in, through the online space, to maintain that rhythm. You can very well watch this service at 2 p.m., 3 p.m., or Tuesday or Wednesday, but I want to urge you, maintain this 10 o'clock Sunday morning rhythm. It may seem small, it may seem insignificant, but hear me in saying this, that small little compromises can lead to spiritual ruin. I know, you, you might disagree with me on this, but I would love to say this to you, that we have to be mindful of what we lose, you know, loyalty and value and compromise. We have to be mindful of these things, because small little compromises, though insignificant, no though not outward, outrightly morally wrong, can very well set us on a trajectory towards spiritual ruin. Because the church, this time that we are, doing, we are having together, is not just a time where we exchange information. It's not just a time where we listen to music and worship we feel like it. It's a time that we have set aside as a form of sacred commitment to one another and to God. And I want to urge you as your pastor, as all who call the city home, maintain that. Continue to have a value for that and long for the day that we're all able to come back together. Now, let, let me begin with uh, going to God's word this morning. I would love to, first of all, apologize. Uh, I do have a lot of stuff to say. I do have a lot of stuff to say. Um, but this, this has been you know, brewing in my heart uh, over the last few months. Uh, this is something that I feel is for our church and for all of you uh, in this time. Uh, I want to first of all say, you know, uh, don't dismiss this time. You know, this time it's not just a time of information exchange, but really, you know, if you were to lean in, lean in, you know, pay attention, engage with this time, get off, you know, our devices. Don't be distracted in this moment. I trust that the Spirit would have something to say to you. It's not by the mere eloquence of men, nor the depth of my research that lives are changed, but it's through the Spirit. I believe through this time, if we were to engage in this moment, the Spirit would speak to us. Now, you may have heard earlier that we would be going into a new series in just a couple of weeks. It's called Our Missional Life. And uh, this is something they're really passionate about because the church is not just to be a club or a social community where we come together, sing some songs, hear a good talk, and then leave the same. But we are to be the hands and feet of Jesus to a broken world. We are to be a missional community. Uh, it's something we're very passionate about. It's part of our yearly rhythm, you know, where we go through uh, aspects of our passion statement, be Jesus, become like Jesus, and towards the end of the year, we do the works of Jesus in our city. Now, you know, for today, I want to spend some time offering a pastoral word for what I've been sensing is the spiritual state of our church. And I thought it would be apt for me to do this teaching and invite us to Take an honest assessment of where we are at, first of all, as people of God, and then as a church community. Because, you know, I realize that it's really easy, uh, and I've seen this so often, for us to bury ourselves in activity and neglect 
the deeper issues and matters of the soul. It's really easy for us to convince ourselves that we are actually doing okay by just, you know, immersing ourselves in activities. It's very easy. All who serve, worship team guys, any people who are serving in ministry, it's really easy for you to be convinced that you are spiritually right, doing okay, just by the activity that you go about. I've seen people go through an existential crisis, as Tim brought up, spiritual crisis, and then boom, it is as though nothing happened. They just got busy, and then I'm okay. I want to say this to all of us, that activity that pulls you away from addressing what God has surfaced in your heart, no matter how urgent, no matter how noble, no matter how commendable, it is a distraction. It is a distraction. And one author has wrote, written it so brilliantly that our generation, this modern world that we're living in, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion, into spiritual ruin. We can very well you know, be about that, even while it's being immersed in, a, in, in spiritual activity, in a faith community. Now, uh, so indulge me for this moment, and by moment I mean a really long time. Uh, and so engage, you know, if you're at home and you're hungry, get your power bars. We are, we are going for a marathon today. It's not going to just be a sprint, all right? With me? All right, as always, you know, this morning I'll begin with reading the teaching text, uh, and then we'll begin with a word of prayer. Let's read a teaching text this morning from Matthew chapter 24, verses 10 to 12. It says this in God's word. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 5, it says this, If you have raised with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? This is the word of the Lord. This morning, my sermon title is this, Run with the Horses. Run with the Horses. And this is riffing off what we just read in Jeremiah chapter 12. And I'm going to be talking to us today about faithfulness, about maintaining faithfulness. Let us go to God in prayer. Lord, we recognize your presence in this place, in our homes, in our lives. Jesus, you are near to us even now. And God, we ask, even as we look at your holy scriptures this morning, that you will speak to us. We pray this prayer every week. Speak to us, O oh God. But today, we want to posture ourselves and intentionally mean it. We want to engage. We want to incline our ears to hear, O oh Lord, what you wish to say to us. You are our Lord. You who have authority over lives. You who have our trust. You who lead us and guide us. We look to you today. Not just as a self-help guru, but as the Lord of our lives. Speak to us. Cause us to turn away from wicked ways, to turn away from distraction, to turn away from things 
that's so trapped and ensnare us. But help us, O oh God, as your people, to follow you well, to run this race well, so that at the end of the age we may hear the words, good and faithful servant. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Now, I've shared this story before, but I believe this story you know, should uh, you know, stir something in our hearts. And this would help frame the rest of the message. The year was 1945, and there were three energetic young men who were bursting onto the ministry scene, and they were all in their mid-20s and experiencing some measure of earthly success. Now, two of the three had already inf uh, achieved a notable influence, uh, not just in ministry, but in various uh, circles as well. Uh, their names were Chuck Templeton and Bron Clifford, and they were, uh, as many said, preaching dynamos. They were amazing communicators. And one university president, after hearing Templeton preach to a crowd of several thousand, called him the most talented and gifted young preacher in the United States. Ron Clifford was also believed to be someone who had greatly impacted, who had greatly impacted the church and the world. And when he preached at a chapel service at the university, the president was so awed by his preaching that he ordered the school bells to be turned off so that there would be no interruption. These were great preachers, great men of God. It was said at the age of 25 that young Clifford had touched more lives, influenced more leaders, and set more attendance records than any other clergyman his age in American history. Now, national leaders vied for his attention. He was tall, handsome, intelligent, eloquent, a lot of the things I'm lacking. But Templeton uh, and Clifford started out strong. They started out so strong. That was in 1945. But by 1950, Templeton left the ministry in pursuit of a career as a radio and television commentator. He eventually decided that he no longer believed in Orthodox Christianity and left the faith. Clifford's story is nothing short but tragic. By 1954, he had left his wife, his two children. Uh, he, uh, he had been indulging in alcohol. It had become a vice in his life, and he wound up selling used cars, and he was eventually found dead nine years later in a sleazy motel room. Now, you may be wondering who the third evangelist was. Now, his name was Billy Graham, and we all know Billy Graham. While Templeton and Clifford were enjoying their success, Graham was establishing boundaries within his personal life and ministry that would ensure his longevity. And it was said that he ended his life free of scandals. When Dr. Billy Graham was asked once how he would like to be remembered, his life, his ministry, he said this, I hope I'll be remembered as someone who was faithful, faithful to God, faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and faithful to the calling God gave me, not only as an evangelist, but as a husband, father, and friend. And there's one thing we keep hearing about Billy Graham, that his life that he lived was not only impeccable, it was faithful. He presents himself as an example to all of us on how we ought to live life, to finish the race well, to not just have high moments in our life, but to run our race with grace, with strength, with faithfulness. What a moment to be talking about faithfulness in this day. As we see divorce rates at an all-time high, people becoming more transient due to hypermobility, and the value of commitment being eroded in a world full of options, there's this as a backdrop that we are called to recapture vision for faithfulness. 
Now, once upon many years ago, I was in the national service, and I was uh, doing my basic military training at Pulau Tekong. Now, uh, many of you who are familiar with this know that uh, the end of your training uh, as a recruit uh, culminates in this graduation march, where you would march for 24 kilometers. Now, when I did my national service, this was a time where we did the graduation march, not in East Coast Park, not in, at the floating platform. We don't get to see the skyline and think about our nation. We did the 24 kilometer march in the jungle. We did it in the jungle. Now, uh, you know, it was, it was by no means a fun or enlightening experience. Most of it was just trudging along and trying to get by. It was really challenging and oftentimes uninspiring. Now, fairly on into my graduation march, I remember uh, about two kilometers in, I tripped over a small rock and I rolled my ankle slightly. It wasn't uh, something that would have taken me out of the march, but it was uh, no, just a tiny injury. I could still go on. And so I went on the march, you know, I didn't give up, and you know, I still kept going on. Now, somewhere around the 16-kilometer mark, the terrain you know, gets especially challenging. Uh, it's all rocks. You are surrounded by all trees. There is no building to look to. It's just trees, rocks, sand, and the ground, and the mud. And at a point in time, no one is inspiring. Someone will try to sing a song and will tell them to shut up because it's so horrendous. It's so hot. There was nothing to look forward to. And right around the 16-kilometer mark for myself, because I wrote my ankle at a 2-kilometer mark, even though it wasn't a big deal, by the 16-kilometer mark, like I was in intense pain. It was super painful. It hurt with every single step. Now, at this point, the mood begins to get a bit depressive. And uh, typically, around the 16-kilometer mark, it's where we will see people start to give up. Uh, and so I had a few friends who gave up you know, at the 16-kilometer mark. You know, the toll of the march was too much. They were tired. They were worn out. They were uh, just, they gave up. Now, others like me also had small injuries, you know, at the start of March, and oftentimes around that time, it started to exacerbate, it started to get really, really intense and painful, and those people too would fall out. Now, the reason why I bring up this story is this. Of late, in my prayers for the church, uh, for all of us, I've been feeling that we are at somewhat of a 16-kilometer mark. We're at a point uh, in the life of our church, we're at a point uh, in human history where many will be tempted, will be prone to giving up. The journey has been hard, has been arduous. Perhaps you, like me, in a, maybe not in a natural sense, but in an emotional, spiritual sense, have picked up some injuries early on in the march. You know, we have been doing this online gathering kind of hybrid thing for the last 18 months, folks. It has been a long time. It has been a long time. And perhaps, you know, early on, you started out with this vision of like, I want to serve God. I want to maintain this commitment. You know, we talked about a lot of things. We talked about how do we be an alternative community? How do we embrace the fruit of the Spirit in an age of the flesh? We talked about our first series, talked about how we don't want to just binge on entertainment, but we want to immerse ourselves in God. We were started out with this vision of maturity. This is a crucible moment. We talked about intensifying our personal 
personal discipleship we talked about, being more present as parents in our homes to uh, mentor, to disciple our children in the way of Jesus. We started out with a whole lot of godly spiritual ambition. In our 18 months in, how have we been doing? How are we doing? Perhaps really early on, you let in a wee bit of compromise, a wee bit of apathy, a wee bit of, it's okay, you know, I'll get back to it at some point. And now 18 months in, the trajectory of your spiritual life has veered off to an unrecognizable state from whence you started. We are at the 16-kilometer mark, folks. Many will be prone to giving up. Many will be prone to settling. You know, I can go on and on about compromise. Fill in the blanks for yourself. What does it mean to you? Maybe you started off with this desire. Because of this compromise, you have settled. You've given up. Now, to all of us today, and I have no compelling message, no inspiring vision to call you to, no divine vision for, to impress upon your hearts. Other than this, I want to call us, church, to be faithful to all that we have heard. To be faithful. To be faithful. It's a simple word, but it means so much. It is immense. Faithful. Be faithful. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't compromise. Don't capitulate to the spirit of the age. Be faithful. And I wonder, even in this moment, in the here and now, you can hear the spirit saying to you, be faithful, church. Be faithful, my people. Don't give up. The reason I say this to you is because I sincerely believe there is a legitimate possibility that many of us won't finish our race on earth well. I do not say this to scare you, nor manipulate you, nor coerce you to give more, serve more. But as your pastor, as your fellow brother in Christ, I'm deeply concerned for the spiritual life. So not just your life, my life as well. I'm deeply concerned. And I think rightly so. Look at what Jesus has said about the times that we're living in. Matthew 24, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people because the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. And what a promise is that for many of us, we have this blind, unfounded optimism with regards to the future. Everything will turn out okay, is what we often think. But just a cursory reading of scripture would dismiss the idea. We read of the climate of the last days in Matthew 24 in the book of Revelations. While we do not celebrate war and disasters, scripture clearly details the kind of climate we would have to endure that precedes the return of Christ. And now we often think, not my time. The darkness, evil, testing, trial is a future generation's battle. The other thing we are really optimistic about is our ability to stand the test of faith. Even if things get bad, I will somehow be sustained and preserved. I am good. And you know, a sermon title I was exploring as an alternative is this, that you think you're good, but you're actually not. You think you're good, but you're actually not, right? Because that's callous and reckless thinking. Because a life of compromise and apathy in the peaceful present does not lead to resiliency and faithfulness in the perilous future. It does not. 
And what has been observed by researchers and pastors around the world, especially in these times, is this, that the disappearance, there's a disappearance of a mode of church engagement characterized by commitment, resilience, and sacrifice among believers. In its place, a new mode of disengaged Christian faith and church interaction is emerging. This new mode is characterized by sporadic engagement, passivity, commitment, phobia, and a consumerist framework. John Sanderson said this, if we probe a bit further, deeper, we see that unfaithfulness is very close to disobedience. For the man who disobeys God has cast himself loose from the only solid support a man can have. And in his direction in life will be controlled by the shifting winds of circumstances and of his whimsical desire. The man who is not controlled by God has no settled reason to keep his word or discharge his obligations. And doesn't this characterize Characterize our time and the sentiments of our time, shifting winds of circumstance and whimsical desire. A man no longer or perceives himself to be free of his obligation to love God and love neighbor, now does whatever he sees fit, whatever feels good to himself. Now we have to choose. We can either be a people motivated by a kind of pragmatic selfishness, guys as wisdom, or we can be a people who are found faithful on the earth. And Jesus said this in Matthew 24. I wonder if you catch, you caught that. He said this, the love of most will grow cold. Most will grow cold. That is to say the majority of people will capitulate to the spirit of the age. Their love will grow cold. An honest reflection, right, in, in reading that text. What is so distinct, robust, and strong about your spiritual life that you can go in that scenario, in relation to that text, I do not fall with the majority. I am the minority where that is concerned. I'm strong. I'm strong. How are you certain that in a climate like that, you would stand firm? You would remain faithful in challenging times. Why are we so certain? Why are we so sure? Thomas Kemper says this, that Jesus today has many who love his heavenly kingdom, but few who carry his cross. Many who yearn for comfort. Few who long for distress. Many of people he finds to share his banquet. Few to share his fast. Everyone desires to take part in his rejoicing, but few are willing to suffer anything for his sake. There are many that follow Jesus as far as the breaking of bread. Few as far as drinking the cup of suffering. Many that revere his miracles. Few that follow him in the indignity of his cross. Where do we stand when we read of something like that? Where do we lean to? Are we faithful? We need to embrace a holy tension, folks. A holy tension that knows we are secure in God's love, yet sober of our lack of resolve and strength to maintain faithfulness. Let's look now at a text that we read in Jeremiah. It says this, if you have raised with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble a safe country, how will you manage in the thickets of the Jordan? The prophet Jeremiah was a prophet of God in a very 
difficult time in Judah's history. Sin was rampant in the land. Few were willing to listen to him. There was threats on his life. There were attempts on his life. And many were, to, to say the least, unhappy with his message. And Judah, Jeremiah had a difficult understanding, a difficulty understanding why that would be the case. He thought of himself as a righteous man following the will of God. And yet he had to endure mockery and violence against uh, committed against him by wicked and evil men who we read in the text were prospering. They were doing well. He was disillusioned. He was disillusioned. And, you know, he laments to God, right? He says, God, no, why is this the case? It is so hard. And this was what God's answer was. That was what we read in Jeremiah chapter 12. If you have raised men on foot and they've worn you out, how can you compete with horses? Essentially, God is saying to Jeremiah, you think it's hard now, and it's going to get a whole lot harder in the future. If you can't keep up now, you are in trouble down the road. The thickets of Jordan was a phrase that referred to the thick forest-like vegetation that grew along the banks of the Jordan, and there were animals such as lions and leopards living there, which is why this was said in contrast to a safe land, a safe country, a smooth land. You think it's dangerous now, Wait till you get to the thickets of Jordan. I love what one commentator writes about this exchange. He writes that in this moment that Jeremiah was experiencing, he was looking for comfort from God. But what he needed was to be braced for a difficult future and not pampered in the moment. And up to this point, Jeremiah had been raising men in safe country, but God wants Jeremiah to raise horses, to run with the horses in the thickets of the Jordan. Jeremiah at this point feels like he is at the end of the rope. And then God says to him, run with the horses. Run with the horses. Now, running with horses is an interesting metaphor, don't you think? First off, is it possible for a man to run with horses? I don't think so, right? Horses have more speed and endurance. They are huge beasts. So maybe at first glance, God's desire for Jeremiah to compete with horses sounds like God is wanting the impossible of Jeremiah, right? In one sense, God is. Jeremiah cannot run with horses without some kind of supernatural aid and intervention. The second, depending on how you interpret this statement of God, your whole attitude can shift about what God really wants for you. If you see God wanting you to run with horses as a kind of over-exacting demands of a God who wants more and more for you, from you, that sounds like an absolutely awful thing. But imagine for a moment, if you had the stamina, the strength, the ability to actually run with horses, right? to have like super long hair, like a mane, you know, and you run with the horses in the, in the white plains, you know, with like, hamana, 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 you know, the Lion King songs, and, and that is your life. You can actually run with the horses. Wouldn't that be a thrilling, exhilarating experience? Only in your wildest dreams, something like that could happen. I want to say this to you, that God wants that for you. God wants you to live a life that is far beyond your own natural ability. He wants you to run with the horses. But there is a process to which we have to go through to get there. You have to endure a little first before you can be trusted with the greater. Or in another way, you have to be faithful with the little to be entrusted with much. Now the problem 
we have with talking about faithfulness is that we banter this phrase and word a lot around a whole lot, right? Have faith in God, man. Keep the faith, brother. That sounds a bit dated, but you know what I mean? We, we use the word faith. Be faithful, man, often. And because we use it so often, over time it's lost its strength, its conviction, the weight it ought to carry. Now the word in the New Testament for faithfulness translates to having confidence, being trustworthy, fidelity, and loyalty. They are strong embodied, embodied characteristic traits, not just mindsets. Faith in God is not just beliefs about God. It's a functional trust and dependence on God. It is. It's not just thoughts we have about God. It's not just songs we sing about God. But it's actually living out what we think, living out what we sing, living out what we read. That is faith. It's manifested that way. Now, I would love to just go through this part real, real quickly, but you know, when I look through the Bible for wisdom on how we are to live faithful lives in a time like this, and I really, really glean a lot from the book of Daniel. Now, we notice that in Daniel's day, Hebrew boys as young as 13 years old were taken away from their families and community, and they were essentially immersed in a radically dissimilar host culture. They were put into a pagan culture and they had to thrive and survive that. And this many ways captures what the people of God are to be in the world. We live in the midst of a radically dissimilar host culture. We have to be mindful and aware of that. We talked about it for the last seven weeks. We are exiles in the world, folks. We do not belong in this world. We do not think and live the way the world does. We are exiles. How do we thrive as exiles in the midst of our world? And, you know, Daniel and his friends, you know, we read in Scripture, were given moments of testing and moments of favor while being in, a, in that culture, right? Who can forget their efforts at eating a different diet, right? I think, you know, the, our Daniel you know, often goes through that temptation where he is like, I'm vegan now, I only eat veggies, no to meat. Kudos, man, he is really building that spiritual muscle. Maybe we should all do that at some point, but I love my steak and chicken way too much. Pray for me. Many also immediately think of Daniel's convictions to pray and his resulting sentence to the lion's den. But the scene that stands out to me most is his commitment to speaking truth and his unwavering integrity and loyalty and faithfulness in the midst, in the face of personal uh, advancement. Now, in the fifth chapter of the book of Daniel, there's an account of King Belshazzar hosting a party and profaning the holy instruments used in the temple of God. And then a hand appears on the wall and the king is terrified, right? And he calls for Daniel, interpret this writing, right? What is this sign? What is happening? Now think about the temptation that Daniel must have faced in that moment. This is a guy low on the packing order, and this is a king, right? He would be tempted to soften the message, perhaps communicate it in a PC, palatable way. It's like you must be aware of the cultural sentiments here, folks. He could be very, very tempted to soften the message. But he did not. He said this, uh, and we read of this account, right? The king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard that the spirit of God is in you, and you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. 
But I've heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple. That's reward. Have a gold chain placed around your neck and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. That was Daniel. Unwavering loyalty and faithfulness to God in the midst of personal advancement and benefits. Now, Daniel lived his life with incredible conviction. It was offered power, prestige, wealth that he declined while still speaking truth to power. He knows from whom his wisdom is derived. It has no allegiance to worldly accolades. In the ninth chapter of Daniel, we read a remarkable account of an angel visiting Daniel to inform him of the effectiveness of his prayer. It says this in God's word. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you begin to pray, a word ran out. Now, a lot of people, when reading this text, focus on the image of the angel. It's this extraordinary thing, right? Daniel was praying, and then an angel shows up and tells him, when you pray, this is what happens in the spiritual realm. But what I find most impressive of this story was that Daniel, who at this point had been living in Babylon for 70 years, still maintained a regular rhythm of prayer. He still orientated his life around the evening sacrifice, a sacrifice to which would not take place in Babylon, folks. His heart, his allegiance was still tethered to the home in which he came from. His life, his rhythms, the way he postured himself, what he committed to was still very much defined by the home which he came from. He had not seen a sacrifice at the temple for decades at this point, folks. Yet his heart was still so set on God. We can learn a lot from Daniel's example of maintaining and manifesting faithfulness whilst being immersed in a radically dissimilar host culture. Go through these points real quickly. First off, Daniel exhibited faithfulness. We talked, is there's semantic range, right, in this word faithfulness, and we think of it meaning various things, but I'll have to offer to you this morning various uh, interpretations that we can glean from Scripture on what faithfulness actually is. What does it mean to actually live faithfully? First off, Daniel exhibited faithfulness as trustworthiness. In God's word, uh, we read in Daniel chapter 6 that they sought to find if Daniel was corrupt in any way, but they could not find no fault in him. Another word to describe Daniel was that he had integrity. He actually lived and did what he said he would do. He lived a life with utmost integrity. It's in, it's in some sense you know, to be one in thought indeed. And that is what faithfulness really is. Faithfulness is living out the faith that we profess, to be one in profession and in deed. But the issue for us today in modern Christianity is that it often follows the winner's script. If you believe in Jesus, if you follow Jesus, if you attend church regularly, this is all the benefits that you will get. You are a winner. But the truth is, a faithful life doesn't always necessarily translate to a successful life where the world is concerned. Look at the saints in the New Testament. All of them, 
almost all of them, died horrific deaths. All of them had to endure suffering. Would we dare say that they are not successful? Would we dare say that they are not faithful? Rich Violetus would say this, it is possible to have a life that does not appear fruitful to the world, but is faithful to God. This is the foolishness of the cross. The cross looks like failure, but it is the greatest act of faithfulness, which has led to incalculable fruitfulness. So the question is this, are we trustworthy? Will we choose to compromise for the sake of advancement? Or will we be willing to be faithful to God's way, even if we lose? And this has implications on all spheres, on the way we govern our finances, on the way we conduct ourselves in our workplaces, on how we treat people. Will we be trustworthy folks? Will we have integrity when it costs and when it counts? Next off, Daniel also expressed faith as fidelity in the midst of options. Now, faith and faithfulness is not just adherence to a set of theological ideas. It is fundamentally a relational commitment, an orientation toward a person. Martin Luther King Jr. once said this, that Christianity has no meaning devoid of Christ. The noble principles of Christianity remain abstract until they are personified in a person called Christ. Christ then becomes the center of the pivotal point around which everything in the Christian faith revolves. Faith is about a person not just a set of beliefs. Now, one of the central metaphors of God's relationship with his people is that of bride and bridegroom. And we witnessed a beautiful marriage uh, just yesterday. And God gives us this ordinance of marriage such that we may comprehend the zeal of his love toward us, his bride. In Hosea chapter 2, we read of uh, God's love. Uh, we, we, we get a picture of God's love in Hosea chapter 2. It says this, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness, in justice, in love, and compassion. I will betroth you, get this word, in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. Now, this story of Hosea, most of us will be familiar with it, right? He was married to Goma, a promiscuous woman of ill repute who ends up committing adultery. And this, in some sense, is comparable to God's relationship with Israel. God loves Israel with a zealous, undying, faithful love, and yet Israel is promiscuous in her ways. This is a chunky text, but it helps us understand this story. Sam Albury writes this as a commentary. In the Old Testament, God had used a human marriage to show what his people were like. He told one of his prophets, Hosea, to go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land, is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Hosea 1 verse 2, Hosea's wife was adulterous. She cheated on her husband and God is saying that his people were and are spiritually adulterous and that's what sin is. It is loving something more than God. It is cheating on God. Spiritually speaking, the church is unfaithful. Yet Jesus is the husband of the church and as Hosea was sent to go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is adulterous, Jesus still loves us despite what we are like. Jesus still loves us. Now the challenge that God has with us this day is that we don't reciprocate the intensity of God's love for us. We don't. We are an unfaithful bride and God is often a wounded lover. 2 Timothy 4 talks about how Paul was saddened with his friend Demas who had left his faith. And he writes this, he's like, Demas, because of his love for the world, has deserted me. What a strong word. 
And that is what God feels when we fiddle around with sin, when we are promiscuous in our ways, when we are idolatrous as a people. He feels a kind of desertion. A love for the world is ultimately spiritual adultery. It is. You know, uh, we are in like wedding season and many people spend a whole lot of money on weddings, right? You know, we wouldn't think twice spending, you know, 50,000, 100,000 on weddings. We want to look it nice. You know, it is after all a big day. And I'm all about that. I know I love weddings. I love, you know, that we get to really celebrate that day. But we know a marriage, covenantal union is so much more than what just happens on that day. Yes, the vows are exchanged, but where rubber meets the road, where push comes to shove, right? That's where, you know, uh, that's where things really happen, doesn't it? Right? And I find it really curious that, you know, we would spend a whole lot on weddings, but not a whole lot on, on improving, on, on solidifying our marriage. I find it really interesting. A love for the world is ultimately spiritual adultery. Now, James chapter 4, verses 4 to 5 says this. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Now, to be clear here, I'm not talking about self-righteous separatism. One of the great controversies in the ministry of Jesus is that he is called a friend of sinners. Sinners love being around Jesus. Somehow the holiest man who ever lived created a safe environment where the lost loved him and the self-righteous hated him. So I'm not talking here about getting rid of compassion for the lost or anyone who thinks differently or coming into a moral superiority and weaponized against others. I'm saying here that there is a kind of worldliness that says we can have whatever we want and still have Jesus. Our temptation as a people of God isn't to atheism, but idolatry. It is God, it's not God all, but God and. However, we realize that God is a jealous and passionate lover. He wants all of us. And the last way, and I would like, love to propose that uh, Daniel exhibits faithfulness is this loyalty under pressure. Now the word loyalty seems dated, right? You know, we think of it uh, in relation to our Sephora gift cards and our Boost, you know, punch cards. But perhaps you know, we really need to capture a vision for loyalty as citizens in God's kingdom. You know, I love this film and uh, it's on Disney Plus, folks. Disney Plus, I recommend it on some level. Uh, Disney Plus, after you're done watching uh, Star Wars, uh, six episodes, not nine, uh, you do yourself a favor and watch this film called A Hidden Life. A Hidden Life. It's an amazing film. It's uh, cinematographically beautiful. It's a Terrence Malick film. And so amazing shots, amazing story. And this film is about our friends, uh, Jäger Seiter, an Austrian conscientious objector who, because of his faith, refused to sign a loyalty oath to Hitler and was imprisoned and then beheaded. Uh, on August 9, 1943. Now, in very practical terms, his refusal meant nothing. And through the movie, we see France uh, hold on to a steadfast resolve to resist evil and do what is right. Even when people close to him, and we see of this scene of where his bishop came to him and said that you can, you know, you, your, your oath is to the fatherland. You should not 
you know, object to what Hitler has required of us, you should just go about it. And even, you know, whilst, you know, experiencing that disappointment from a faith leader, he still maintains steadfast resolve. Now, there's this scene in the movie where France was being questioned by a Nazi official who would end up sentencing him. The official asked him, you know, after hearing of his conscientious objection, he says this, do you imagine if any thing you do today would even matter. Would it even matter? The war won't change. No one would change. Nothing will happen. And then he responds to the official by saying this, I have this feeling inside me that I can't do what I believe is wrong. I have this feeling inside me and I can't do what I believe is wrong. Now the official response uh, to that you know, very interesting line, he says this. Do you have a right to do this? In reference to this feeling, do you have a right to obey this feeling? And without missing a beat, Franz says, do I have a right not to? Do I have a right not to? That is loyalty under pressure. That is faithfulness. In Luke 18, says in God's word, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That is what he's looking for. Faith, faith, faithfulness, loyalty, fidelity, trustworthiness, he is looking for faith. And the case I'm making to you today is it's very easy to be immersed in a whole lot of activity and not have any faith where it counts. Second Chronicles 16.9, this is a verse we so, are so familiar with, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him, those who are found faithful. Now it's interesting, you have to read this verse in its entire context. This was said to King Asa. God is looking for faith, for loyal people. And you read some ways down in that same chapter. It says that Asa in the 39th year of his reign, he fell super sick, he had a disease in his feet. And though his disease was severe, even in illness, it says in God's word, he did not seek help from God. I love to say this again, that faith isn't just about Believes in God it is a functional trust where it counts, where it counts. Now, I'd love to clue you in on where all of this is coming from. You know, last week, you know, we heard an amazing message from Pastor Janice and she talked about how we ought to practice God's word, you know. That gospel isn't just something that we read, you know, uh, and, and this wasn't just subject matter of what she said, but it was an important point. You have to practice, you have to put God's word into practice. And we read about it, you know, Jesus would say that, that the one who puts my words into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock, to put it into practice. And now, you know, as we are responding to her message, the worship team comes up on stage and they begin to sing this song that we're all familiar with. It talks about how all things is for God's glory. All things is for his name. Then all things you will have preeminence. Then all things you would have the first place. And he goes into this bridge, right? Put me anywhere. Put me anywhere. Right? Just put your glory in me. I'll serve anywhere. It's such an immense song. And I was standing there, you know, I was just preparing to come up to close the meeting. And, you know, I'd love to submit this to all of you, right, that you may discern this as well. I had probably one of these strangest spiritual experiences in my life. I was listening to the words of this beautiful song, yet my heart was just filled with 
anguish. And it was almost as though with every word that came from, not saying that Tim's voice was horrible or anything, but it was a great thing on many levels. I felt just a deep anguish in my soul. And then I was led to reflect, and the Holy Spirit began to speak to me. I was beginning to, to reflect on, do I actually know what I'm saying here? Do I actually know what I'm singing here? Does it really matter that I'm professing these words? Do I really desire for this to be the case in my life? And if you were to do an honest reflection about the songs we sing and the lives we live, we would, over time, begin to see a great disparity. How many of us can say this with full confidence that all of my life is for God's glory? All of my life is for His name. All things He has the first place. I get that we sing in faith, but at some point we have to begin to wonder, are we being hypocrites and liars in this act of profession? At some point we have to begin to consider, why is it so easy for me to say these words and for it to not move me into any action? Have I gone careless? Have I become okay with the disparity? Have I been, become okay with being unfaithful because that is what the general sentiment is? Most people are okay with it. But I'd love to end this time with this final thought. And that is this. We have all that I've said. By God's grace, we do not have to do this on our own. We do not. We do not run with the horses apart from God's grace, kindness, and mercy. Hear me, people of God. Our faithfulness is rooted not in our willpower, but in God's faithfulness toward us. He is the one who never gives up on us when we are promiscuous, when we sin, when we are distracted, when we compromise. He never gives up on us. He is the one who strengthens us when we call. He does the work of sanctification in us. He loves us with an everlasting and unconditional love. 2 Timothy says this, that if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. What does this mean? It means this, that God, his nature, his heart, is to be faithful. And our relationship to God is not solely dependent on our faithfulness. Isn't that good news? He loves us with an everlasting, unconditional love. His nature is to be faithful. His heart is to be faithful. Lamentations 3 says this, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You know, in Exodus, we read this stunning line in, in chapter 34 where our God reveals his name. This is my name. I'm Yahweh. Slow, compassionate, slow to anger, compassionate. He talks about how he abounds in love and faithfulness. And that word for faithfulness in Hebrew is the word emet, E-M-E-T, emet. And it is uh, the word we say at the end of our prayers, amen, is derivative of emet. Whenever we profess amen, we are saying, God is faithful. God is faithful. In our prayers, as we close in amen, we are saying, God, you are faithful. We are affirming the faithfulness of God because you are faithful. Therefore, I can pray this prayer and trust that you'll be answered. You are faithful, God, abounding in love and faithfulness. God is faithful. And because he is faithful to us, he never abandoned us. 
He never leaves us. He's eternally committed to us because he is faithful to strengthen us, to sanctify us, to give us grace and strength. When we come to him, we can live faithful lives. We do not have to do it in our own strength. But first off, it starts off with a resolve to go, I will not settle. I will not settle for a compromised life. I will not settle with the disparity I observe between the songs I sing and the lives I live. I will not settle. I want to run with the horses. In closing, we know that uh, you know, this, this, this title, Run with the Horses, comes from uh, Jeremiah, but it's also the title of a book that Eugene Peterson wrote. And Eugene Peterson is a faith hero of mine. He wrote the transliteration of the Message Bible. And this is a lengthy part, but he, you know, in classic Eugene Peterson fashion, rewrites or like has expands uh, this exchange that Jeremiah has with God. I have it up on the screen. You can almost feel God saying this to all of us. Life is difficult, Jeremiah. Are you going to quit at the first wave of opposition? Are you going to retreat when you find that there's more to life than finding three meals a day and dry places to sleep at night? Are you going to run home the minute you find that there's that a mass of men and women are more interested in keeping their feet warm than in living at risk to the glory of God? Are you going to live cautiously or courageously? I called you to live at your best, to pursue righteousness, to sustain a drive toward excellence. It is easier, I know, to be neurotic. It's easier to be parasitic. It's easier to relax in embracing arms of the average. Easier, but not better. Easier, but not more significant. Easier, but not more fulfilling. I called you to live a life of purpose far beyond what you think yourself capable of living and promise you adequate strength to fulfill your destiny. Now at the first sight of difficulty, you are ready to quit. If you are fatigued by this run-of-the-mill crowd of apathetic mediocrities, what will you do when the real race starts? The race with the swift and determined horses of excellence. What is it you really want, Jeremiah? Do you want to shuffle along with this crowd? or run with the horses? I'd love to offer that as a question for all of us to reflect on. We choose, or do we want to live cautiously or courageously in this day, in this time? Do you want to shuffle along with the crowd, or do we want to run with the horses? And so, church, I want to call all of us to loyalty where it counts, to resolve to be trustworthy in character, to be faithful to God, to seize spiritual adultery and devote ourselves wholly to Him. Do not settle for the average folks. Do not settle for apathy, but to run with the horses. I urge you, city, to pursue faithfulness. Can we all stand in this place and at home, I invite you to engage in this moment even as we Go to God in reflection, but also in humble surrender. Now, there's this story in the book of Acts about Paul. You know, I love uh, this story. At this point, uh, Paul had been going to city after city, and he'd been preaching gospel, demonstrating, declaring the kingdom. And then he came, uh, we, read in, we read in Acts chapter 14, to an especially hard city. This city was very resistant to the gospel, very resistant to Paul's advances. 
And it says this in Gospel in Acts chapter 14. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and warned the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. Now this is such a stunning story. Because get this, he was dead. He was stoned, he was dragged out. And then God's word said that the disciples came and they gathered around him and then he got back up and he went back into the city. He got back up with life, with courage and he went back to the very city that squandered him. Isn't that phenomenal? That word gather is soft, right? It really translates to besiege and circle. They came around him like a garrison and breathed life into him and he went back with courage with faithfulness. One of our core pursuits as a church is this, it's to be a missional community. Now, isn't that phrase curious to you, right? Because when oftentimes we think of mission, we think of it as a personal call, a personal pursuit. But why missional community? First off, our communities are not to be defined as social clubs. They'll be defined by God's mission on the earth. We are gathered together, not just because we like each other, but we are gathered together for a spiritual mission and purpose. The other reason why we call it missional communities is this, that in order to run the race with strength, in order to live a life of faithfulness, in order to run with the horses, you need people around you. You need people around you to gather around you when you're dead and speak life into you such that you may run with courage. That is something that I hope would be the vision that we carry as a church community. We are to come together, gather each other such that all of us may run the race with strength. All of us may hear that phrase at the end of the age, good and faithful servant, that we won't be the most whose love has grown cold, but we will stand firm when it counts. We will compromise even in a little, but we will maintain faithfulness all the days of our life. And so today I'm speaking to two groups of people. First off, if you know that you have entertained compromise in your life and you know that you are not right with God this day, you have lived a life of apathy, God's word says this to you, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive our sins. That is the faithfulness of God on display. He is faithful to forgive. And so if that is you, in love, in humility, I say to you, sober up. Wake up. It is not a trivial thing to compromise. It's not a trivial thing to entertain spiritual apathy. Sober up, wake up. Acknowledge the disparity and ask for God's grace. And to the other, if you are beaten, worn out and exhausted, this has been a long season for you. For the last 18 months, you're tired. You feel spiritually dead. As a community, I know that we're not embodied in this moment, but with all of my heart, and I believe with all the heart of people in this room, in our church, we gather around you now and we speak life into you. Life, life, life in Jesus' name. Run the race again with faithfulness, with courage. Go back, go back to that mission, that purpose that God has given you. Don't give up, don't give up. You'll make it by God's grace and the love of His people. 
In closing, I'd love to pray this final prayer over you. Eugene Peterson writes this prayer in the time where he was disillusioned, perhaps experiencing some of what many of you are experiencing in this day. He says this, Oh God, my faith gets overladen with dust. Blow it clean with the wind of your spirit. When my habits of obedience get stiff and rust, anoint them with the oil of your spirit. Restore the enthusiasm of my first love for you. And that's our prayers today. Restore, God, the enthusiasm of our first love for you. We've gotten distracted. We've lost sight of you. God, tether us back to you. Bring us back to you now. So without rushing this moment, all of you at home, posture yourselves now in seeking God in humble repentance, in seeking God for His grace to carry us. Acknowledge for where you have fallen short. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. God, we so need you. We so need you now. And so in whatever way is fitting to you, maybe kneeling, prostrating on the floor, standing up with your hands lifted up, express to God your need for Him. Express to God for where you have fallen short and in need of His grace. Spend a few moments doing so. God, we so need you. God, we so need you. Yes, Jesus.